Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Andrew, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today and, and have the joy of starting a new study. One of the ordinary ways in which we approach the Bible on Sundays as, as a church is we uh, like to just kind of walk through books of the Bible from start to finish. And so today we're going to do that by jumping into the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel under a new series titled, When Mess Meets Mercy, the gospel of this Book. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Samuel chapter 1. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. Utilize that resource to navigate your way through this big book with lots of other books inside it and find your way to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And as you're making your way there, I'm going to voice another prayer for us and we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. God, let your word create faith where faith is absent. Let your word sustain faith where faith is shaken. Let your word strengthen the faith of your people. God, we ask and we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many years ago, there lived a man named Elkanah. And Elkanah met and fell in love with a woman named Hannah. Not long after meeting and falling in love with her, he asked her to, to marry him. And so Elkanah found himself marrying a woman of grace, which is the literal meaning of what her name is, Hannah, this woman of grace. And together they moved out into an area known as Ephraim, this rural region in ancient Israel. And this young, excited couple decided to move there to start their family and begin this new life together. Sadly, however, their dream was foiled for reasons only known to the Lord at the time, for the Lord had kept Hannah from being able to conceive and to bear children. Now, Elkanah did what many people did back in the day. He did what was common. Uh, since he wanted to preserve and to extend his lineage, he took a second wife, and this second wife would bear him many kids. Now, at the time when all this was happening, Israel was living under the illusion as if they were a people without a king. Although Yahweh, the Lord, who rescued and redeemed them from Egypt several hundred years prior to this moment, he, he loved them and he intended to rule them and to reign over them, the people of Israel rejected his rule. They did not want God as king, choosing their way over his way. The people of Israel kept just making a mess of things. And, and so this sad saga just repeated itself over and over and over again throughout a stretch of history that is chronicled now in the book of Judges, this, this cycle where the people of Israel would, would sin and reject God as king. And after doing that, they would suffer the consequences of their sin and create make a mess for themselves only to the point where They'd hit rock bottom and cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord, each time the people of Israel would cry out to him for help, he would meet their mess with his mercy, and he would raise up deliverers to rescue his people from the various situations and circumstances they found themselves in. The problem was, though, that the Lord's deliverance time and time again just didn't seem to stick didn't seem to change things. No lasting change resulted from the 
mercy God was pouring out on his people over and over and over again. So that when you come to the end of the book of Judges, the, the book closes with these words, for in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Now picking up where Judges left off, 1 Samuel uh, encourages us a little bit by reminding us that there were still some like Elkanah who wanted to worship the Lord who wanted to, to worship Yahweh. And so every year he would pack up his family and together they would caravan to Shiloh, which was the most sacred site of the ancient world at the time. For that was the place where Moses many years prior had set up the tent of meeting. That was the place where Yahweh was to be worshiped according to the covenant relationship he shared with those that he had redeemed. But unfortunately, Shiloh was under poor leadership at the time. The deteriorating leadership of Eli, a priest, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, Hophni and Phinehas, their, their stories will be told uh, in the coming weeks. But suffice it to say right now that they were terribly corrupt. An elderly Eli was phoning it in, and Hophni and Phinehas just preyed on the people who sojourned to such who sojourned to Shiloh in order, in order to worship. And so at the start of 1 Samuel, God's people needed new spiritual leadership. They needed new leadership for they were a spiritually barren people. And if you think about the book of 1 Samuel and how it is structured, it is organized around, uh, around that theme, around Leaders that were provided to God's people. The book may be divided into three sections, linked together by three leaders. First, you have Samuel. And Samuel would pre prove to be the better prophet that Israel needed at the time. And, and then you're going to move into a section that deals with Saul, the, the compromised king that Israel requested. And, and then when we move to the end of the book, we're going to be focusing on David, the the anointed king that God's redemptive purposes required. And so the book kind of moves along this theme of leadership, but it begins with this story of Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. And what you discover when you heard this passage, a portion of this passage read a moment ago, is that Hannah was, was barren. And one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we think about Hannah's barrenness in this moment is that her barrenness was representative of Israel's barrenness at the time. That both Hannah and the people of Israel, they weren't experiencing the joy of God's blessings and the promises that God extended to them under their covenant relationship. So you take, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 7, a passage that lays out the types of blessings God's people should have been experiencing had they been faithful to the covenant and honored God as king. But listen to what, what goes down in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The people of Israel, were as the covenant was being formed, this relationship being established between God and Israel, this is the word that he spoke to them in the very early days. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless your offspring and the produce of your land, your grain, new wine, and fresh oil, the young of your herds and the newborn of your flocks. In the land he swore to your fathers that he would give you, you will be blessed above all peoples. 
there will be no infertile male or female among you or your livestock. The Lord will remove all sickness from you. He will not put on you all the terrible diseases of Egypt that you know about, but instead he will inflict them on all who hate you. There was an agreement in the covenant that God would bless those who would bless his people and he would curse those who would curse his people. And that's what that's a reference to. He goes on, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God is delivering over to you and not to look on them with pity. Do not worship their gods for that will be a snare to you. But the people of Israel did not heed this warning. Israel and her leaders, they They did worship the gods of the surrounding nations. They did compromise their relationship with the Lord in in a desire to be like the nations that surrounded them. And that proved to be a snare. As the people of Israel were ensnared and as a result, they were cut off from experiencing the joy of God's blessings. And so Hannah's barrenness, as you'll see in the story, it comes to represent Israel's barrenness. And so I want you to understand right off the bat that Hannah's barrenness should not be understood or Hannah's barrenness and what God does in her life. This isn't necessarily a template. It's not a template guaranteeing what God will do for every woman of grace who may have a hard time conceiving. We shouldn't read this story and take it as a template, applying it in those ways, because that's not what's going on here. Hannah's story, her individual story is a a part of something, something much bigger. It's a part of a story that God is writing that concerns all of his people and the blessing he intends to bring to a barren, a barren people. But one of the things that we can say with with confidence when we read Hannah's story is that we can recognize that God is always working on an infinite number of levels. And the way God is at work in the nuances of our individual stories, that those nuances are to be written into God's, the collective story of God's redemption so that we find our individual stories and all that God is doing in our lives as individuals, it is intended to serve and to bless others. And so Hannah's lack of her inability to conceive and bear children, that is an important part and it concerns her individually, but that individual story is a part of what God is doing collectively for his people to bring blessing to them. And so we are encouraged as we consider this passage today to think about the nuances of our individual stories. Think about the nuances of your life and the unique elements of your story and consider how the Lord may be at work within them, both the good and the bad of them, the the tough stuff and the enjoyable stuff, how the Lord is working all of that together to bring blessing uh, blessing to other people. This is what we're going to see unfold in Hannah's life. We're going to find that this barren womb of this, the barren womb of this woman of grace would become a source of blessing for God's barren people. But before that day comes, Hannah would suffer much. She would endure a lot of trial, a lot of difficulty, as you heard in the passage that was read for us a moment ago. But that shouldn't surprise us because as we 
familiarize ourselves with the God of redemption and we familiarize ourselves with the God of the gospel, we find that God's eternal blessings are often hammered out against the anvil of affliction. This is certainly the rhythm of the gospel itself where the cross preceded the empty tomb, right? This is the rhythm of redemption. This is the way that God works where death precedes life. Barrenness often precedes blessedness. And so Hannah suffers much in this story. And you just think about what goes down when Elkanah would bring his family to Shiloh. And each time Elkanah would offer a sacrifice to the Lord. We're told that he would take kind of what was offered and he would uh, give the appropriate amount of portions to each one of his wives. That covenant protocols required that that, um, certain amounts be given to certain wives depending on how many dependents they had. And so he would give a certain amount to Penina who had lots of mouths to feed. And, And so he would give her her portion. And then He would also give Hannah her portion. Now, this was a reasonable practice. It's an understandable way to kind of divvy out things, knowing that people needed to eat, kids needed to be cared for. But but even though it was a reasonable practice, it was an understandable practice, it never ceased to sting Hannah. Because each time a sacrifice was offered and the portions of that sacrifice were divvied out amongst those who had gathered to worship the Lord, Hannah received a stinging, tangible reminder of the fact that she had no children. Now, English translations do not uh, convey the ambiguity of verse 5 very well. You look at verse 5, and we'll read it again. It says, but he, that is Elkanah, gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Now, English translations don't convey the ambiguity of that verse, because quite literally, verse 5 may be translated, uh, instead of a double portion, what, what's translated there is a portion of one pair of nostrils. A portion of one pair of nostrils. So what's actually going on here is that Hannah only received one portion. She received the portion that was that was hers under the covenant, but it was a single portion because she had one mouth to feed. She had no children to care for. She had no children to feed in this moment. And as you know, every story has an an antagonist, every hero. For every hero, there seems to be an anti-hero, and there's certainly one in this story as well when you consider Penina, Elkanah's other wife. Penina was a brutal woman. She was a bully of a woman. And she constantly bullied Hannah for something that Hannah could not control. She was constantly bullying Hannah over the fact that she could not have kids. Now, I don't know what may have gripped Penina to want to treat Hannah this way. Maybe, maybe she was like a lot of bullies who tend to operate out of insecurity. And so out of an insecurity, perhaps she felt because she was Elkanah's second wife and not his first wife. So maybe she felt insecure because of that. And so in order to make herself feel better, she tried to put Hannah down. Bullies often are often trying to compensate for insecurities that, that are deeply held within them. And so they treat people poorly as a result. Maybe Panina is driven by that type of insecurity. But in any case, we're told a couple of times that she would taunt Hannah that she would bully Hannah. She's described as a rival to Hannah. 
Maybe she looked at Hannah and said, hey, Hannah, your name means that you're a woman of grace, but, but there's no grace in your life. Your name means that you're favored, but you're not favored. If you were favored, you would have kids like me. But if Penina had known her history and if she had known the God that she is referring to in that moment, she would understand that, that people of grace become people of grace precisely because of their barrenness. People of grace become people of grace precisely because they are barren and they have nothing to offer the Lord, nothing to offer God but their need. You know, grace requires barrenness to bring what it intends to bring into our lives. And as we familiarize ourselves with the story of redemption, we'll find that God does his best work in barren settings. You just think about some of the things that God has done. You take Sarah. Sarah was married to Abraham, and Abraham received a promise from God that they would have a child, and through that child, blessing would come to the nations, but Sarah was barren. But then God showed up and brought blessedness out of her barrenness as, they, as she soon gave, or eventually gave birth to Isaac, and Isaac would become the son of promise, the one through whom blessing would reach the nations. And then Isaac would grow up and he would marry Rebecca. And Rebecca too would be barren. She was unable to have kids. And Isaac would pray for her until the Lord opened up her womb and she conceived and gave birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob would become the father of Israel. Then you keep going and you consider Jacob's wife, Rachel, and how she too was barren until the Lord opened up her womb and and Joseph was born, and Joseph would be used by the Lord to, to save lots of people who were starving in the middle of a famine. Then you keep going into, even into the period of the judges, where Samson, one of the keynote deliverers of God's people, he, he was born from the fruitless womb of Manoah's wife. Had Penina known her, her own story, had she known the history of Israel, she would know that God does his best work in barren settings. And then had Penina lived a little bit longer, if she was around in the first century, she would have seen how Elizabeth, this barren woman, would be blessed by God to give birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. Major figures in redemptive history were born from barren women. God does his best work in those types of settings. But Penina didn't catch this. She didn't know this. And so she just bullied and tormented Hannah to the point where we're told in the story where Hannah would got to the point where she would weep and not eat. And she began to grow paralyzed by this torment, depressed where she would just weep and weep and refuse to eat. Now Elkanah, her husband, would try to comfort her. And though he meant well, he didn't really do well when you look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, uh, Elkanah says, Hannah, why are you crying? Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? And again, I think he means well in this moment, but he's not doing well because he seems to be making the situation more about him and less about her, which isn't good counsel. It's not good comfort. But by God's grace, neither Panina's antagonism nor Elkanah's insensitivity, neither one of those troubles would, would compound 
Hannah's struggles and Hannah's sufferings by drawing her away from the Lord. Notice what she does in response. Rather than being drawn away from the Lord, Hannah turns to the Lord. She turns to the Lord and prays. Now, we're told that Hannah was deeply hurt. Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept many tears. Now, many times tears in and of themselves can constitute prayer. Psalm 6, 8 says, The Lord hears the sound of, of weeping. So let me ask you, people, where do you turn when you are hurt? Where do you turn when you are deeply hurt? Do you turn towards the Lord or do you turn away from the Lord? Now, from my experiences, I've had the joy of serving Jesus as a pastor here in Seattle for a little over eight years. I, I tend to see that some people turn away from the Lord when they are deeply hurt because they do not know that they can turn to the Lord with their tears. They don't know that their tears are welcome. They are not aware of the fact that God occupies the throne of grace and we can bring our tears to his throne of grace knowing that God hears the cries not of the haughty but of the humble not of the proud, but of those who put themselves before him, even in the midst of their hurts, even in the midst of their sadness, even in the midst of their afflictions. A hurting person is free to weep before the Lord. It's always better to weep before the Lord than it is to wither apart from the Lord. And Hannah knew this. She knew that God welcomes the cries of his people, and he welcomes the words of weeping worshipers. Psalms, so, uh, the writer of the Psalms would tell us the same thing, where David would write these words, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my troubles before him, bringing our tears and our hurts before the Lord, turning towards him rather than away from him in those moments. This was Hannah's example. She turns to the Lord, and look at verse 11. She begins to plead, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. You know, pain can produce powerful theologians. And Hannah becomes in this moment a powerful theologian. This is the first time a human being in the Bible addresses God with the title Lord Almighty or Lord of Armies. That despite the fact that she is deeply hurt, despite the fact that she cannot conceive, she's affirming the fact that God is sovereign. She's affirming the fact that God is powerful. And she does this before the Lord in prayer because this sovereign, powerful God occupies a throne of grace. And he welcomes the words of weeping worshipers. So Hannah comes in this moment, this powerful theologian, affirming the sovereignty of God, putting herself before him, not as someone who's entitled to blessing. Because entitlement isn't welcome in the throne room of, in the throne room of God's grace. So she doesn't come to God with a sense of entitlement. She comes to God with her honest desires, and she pleads with the Lord to grant her this request. 
two times, she refers to herself as your servant. This is a posture of absolute subjection. Absolute subjection before a sovereign God. This was Hannah's example. And when we think about the varied forms of barrenness we are struggling with in this moment and the barrenness we will experience as we journey through a barren world, we, we too want to bring our barrenness before the Lord with a similar humility. A similar humility that recognizes that God opposes the proud, that he opposes those who are entitled or feel as though they are entitled to his blessing. No, God gives grace to the humble. And so the humble person like Hannah and the humble person like Job comes before God in the midst of our deep hurts. And we recognize the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. This is Hannah's moment here. She's praying before the Lord, not as an entitled person, but as a humble person. And Eli is there. We're told that Eli, the the one who was overseeing worship at Shiloh in the moment, he's there and he's observing Hannah. And he can't really hear what she's praying. She, he just observes her, her lips moving and draws the silly conclusion that she must be drunk. Look at this babbler over here. Look at this drunk woman over here who's, who's got so much emotion wrought in what she is doing in that moment. And perhaps tears are falling. And, and so Elkanah assumes that she's just a drunkard. But Hannah's not drunk, is she? And so she responds to Elkanah's false conclusion. She says, no, my Lord, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Now, this isn't the last time. This isn't the last time God would do uh, something miraculous when praying people are accused of drunkenness. A similar circumstance surrounded the moment God blessed the barren world that we live in right now with the birth of the church. It's what happened in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. God's people had gathered to pray because they knew they were helpless and hopeless without God's spirit, without God's power, without God's help. And so they come together and they are crying out to the Lord, help us, give us your spirit, give us your presence, enable us to go forth and make disciples of all nations. And they are crying out to the Lord when things begin to shake and God's spirit begins to fall. And when the Holy Spirit filled up those disciples and the church was birthed, those who were on the outside looking in, they accused them of being drunk as well. They did not understand the depth of spirituality that was taking place in Pentecost. And Eli can't quite comprehend the depth of spirituality that is happening in Hannah's heart either. And so he thinks she's drunk, but really she's deeply engaged. She's deeply engaged in her relationship with the Lord. And she's pouring her heart out in this moment. And we pick up in verse 18. Hannah prayed. Eli responds, says, okay, now go in peace. May God grant you your request. And then verse 18, we're told that Hannah responds, may your servant, referring to Eli, find, or referring to herself, may your servant find favor with you, she replied. And then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked 
despondence. Something began to change in that moment. Her anguish subsided. Now, she doesn't know if God is going to answer her request. She doesn't know how God may grant the request, but she has prayed. She has brought her barrenness before the Lord, and now she's content to leave it in his hands. And because she has brought her barrenness to the Lord and and is going to leave it with him, she can now rise and eat again. Her anguish has subsided for the moment because she's cast her anxieties upon the Lord. She's cast her anxieties upon this sovereign, almighty, powerful God who loves her, who cherishes her, who favors her. And after getting to this moment where she's cast her anxieties upon the Lord, she now rises and she goes and she eats She eats again. The story continues. The next day, the family returns home. They travel back home. And and that night, Elkanah and Hannah connect. and, And we're told in verse 19 that the Lord remembered Hannah. That's a powerful phrase to know that the Lord remembered Hannah. It's a phrase that is used often in the Old Testament. When the Lord remembers someone, he's resolving to act redemptively. The Lord remembered Noah when the flood waters came. The Lord remembered Abraham when he destroyed Sodom and he delivered both Noah and Abraham and their families. The Lord would remember Rachel when Joseph was born and now the Lord is remembering Hannah. He's resolving to act redemptively, remembering her. But keep in mind, he's remembering her because he's remembering his people. What God is doing in Hannah's life is for the sake of the people of Israel. And so in remembering her, he's remembering all of his people. And pick up in verse 20. It says, after some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. And so suddenly, Hannah finds herself bearing fruit. He, she finds herself giving birth to a son, this son named Samuel. Now remember that when she was praying earlier, when she asked the Lord for a child, she vowed in that moment to give the child back to the Lord. Yes, she wanted a child. Yes, she wanted to be blessed with motherhood. But there seemed to be something else going on in her heart where she really wanted to connect with the Lord and experience his blessing because now she's willing to hand this child that she's prayed for, that she's longed for, that she suffered so long without, she's now willing to give the child back because she vowed to do so. And if you look back at her prayer, she refers to how she will give the child back to the Lord to serve him all the days of his life, and how the child's hair will not be cut. This is all echoes of what's called the Nazarite vow that's laid out in Numbers chapter 6. A Nazarite was, a, was someone who was completely set apart and completely set aside for the Lord's purposes. Now, a Nazarite typically, in order to become a Nazarite and to serve the Lord in this kind of way, you, you volunteered yourself for that role, and you set yourself apart to serve the Lord as a Nazarite. And usually when you became a Nazarite, there, there was a time stamp, a time frame applied to it as a definite period of time. But we're going to find that Samuel's not an ordinary Nazarite. For he didn't volunteer himself. He was volunteered by his mother. And he wasn't volunteered for a season. He was volunteered for a lifetime, devoted, consecrated, set apart to the Lord. 
Samuel would be a unique figure with a unique role to play as he provides new leadership for God's barren people. And so you look at verse 26 and you see this go down. After Hannah weans Samuel and brings him back to Shiloh to devote Samuel to the Lord, listen to what she says, please, my Lord, as surely as you, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed that this boy, I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked him for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he worshiped the Lord there. Now the word he there, that pronoun, we don't know if that refers to Eli or to Samuel. It's probably a collection. They're probably all worshiping the Lord now in response to this, this moment. It's a remarkable response to what she has received from the Lord. Hannah wasn't going to cling to God's blessing with clenched fists. Instead, she said, I'm going to hold on to God's blessings with an open hand. I'm going to devote them back to the Lord. Hannah understood that God's blessings, though they are for us, they don't belong to us. That when God blesses a person, he blesses them so they can be a blessing to others. And Hannah is modeling this by devoting her child back to the Lord. This blessing you've given me, I will not cling to it. I will devote it. This was Hannah's example. This woman of grace understood this aspect of God's blessing. And she refused to let the blessing become a snare to her. A snare that she clung to, causing her to forsake her vow to the Lord. No, she, she follows through with what she told the Lord she would do. And so in the story, God was doing far more than giving a barren woman a child, as great as that is, and as wonderful as that is. God was ultimately bringing blessing to his barren people. And as you consider this narrative, there are some wonderful gospel notes that, that echo from its pages. Wonderful gospel notes issue forth from this story concerning this woman of grace. And as we think about Hannah, we discover what it means for you and I to become people of grace. What it means for you and I to be people of grace. Let me give you four thoughts. Be, being people of grace means that you and I embrace our barrenness. Being people of grace means that we embrace our barrenness. That God's grace does its best work in barren settings. That barrenness is not a barrier to us being blessed by God. In many ways, our barrenness is a necessary condition for God's grace to be what it is in our lives. This is what Jesus would say in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven shall be theirs. And when he says poor in spirit, understand that he's... That, that word poor means to cower and to cringe like a beggar. It means to see that you have nothing to bring to the table in your relationship with God except your need, except your barrenness. This is why the old hymn writer said, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to you for grace. And so people of grace, they learn to embrace their barrenness. We do not see our barrenness as a barrier to grace, but as the condition for it. Because people of grace also trust the fact that God can bring blessing from our barrenness. That God brings life from death. He brings light from darkness. God brings blessing from barrenness time and time and time again. There's a connection 
between creation and redemption in this regard. You know how the Bible begins with God creating the, creating in the heavens and the earth. And, and theologians would tell us that God created ex nihilo, which means God created all that we see today out of nothing. He brought everything out of nothing. That was how he created, but that's also how he redeems. Which is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, the apostle Paul would declare... For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Salvation out of nothing, blessing out of barrenness, the Lord speaking light into our lives, calling life from our lives, bringing blessing out of our barrenness. And just as our life before God would begin in that way, it should continue. As God continues to bring blessing out of barrenness, this is why we live lives of utter dependency upon the Lord. This is why we hear Jesus' words in John 15 when he tells us, look, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you will be barren. But when you abide in me and I in you, you're going to bear much fruit. You're going to grow into my image. You're going to influence others for my glory. You're going to be people of grace as I'm bringing blessing out of your barrenness. And then third, being people of grace means we devote our entire selves to God. Just as Hannah would bring this child to Shiloh and devote him to the Lord all the days of his life, we respond to God's mercy, we respond to God's grace by devoting our whole selves to the Lord. This is the flow of the gospel as Paul would communicate it in the book of Romans. He spends the first 11 chapters laying out the gospel, declaring what God has done for us in Christ. And then he turns the corner in verse in chapter 12 verse 1 saying therefore in light of the gospel brothers and sisters in view of the mercies of God I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true worship. You are now to devote your entire selves to the Lord that there's not any area of your life that isn't subjected to him, that isn't submitted to him, that you would live your life before God. I would go back through this passage sometime today and just underline the moments, uh, all the times the phrase before God is used. And that is a euphemism for the presence of God, being aware of his presence and God aware of you being aware of his presence. Life for the Christian is to be lived before God in response to the mercy and the grace that he has shown us. So everywhere we go, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, all time, all space is devoted to the Lord as we live before him in response to his grace and mercy. And then lastly, being people of grace means that we are blessed to bless. Being people of grace means that we do not cling to any blessing God gives us. Instead, we hold all of God's blessings with open hands, recognizing that we are blessed to bless. That whatever God gifts us with, whatever God entrusts us with, we hold with open hands lest they become a snare for us lest we begin to elevate God's blessings above God's presence, lest we begin to elevate God's gifts above himself. We want to hold all things with open hands, trusting the Lord who gives and takes away. 
But no matter what we say with Job, blessed be the name of the Lord. People of grace are blessed to bless. Church, I'm looking forward to journeying through 1 Samuel with you in the coming months. And and I pray that the Lord would impress himself before us powerfully so that we would live before him as people of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for the fact that our barrenness does not cut us off from your blessing, doesn't cut us off from your grace. We thank you and we praise you in this moment for the fact that you do your best work in barren settings. And so we trust Jesus' words, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we pray that back to you in this moment, trusting you to bring blessing from our barrenness all the days of our lives as we live before you as people of grace. God, we love you and we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.